A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I think that the most important work we can do is really on ourselves, because it's all yeah. fractal. Yeah. So... My liberation is linked to your liberation in a way, but I need to liberate myself first. Welcome to the Warrior You podcast, proudly presented by Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. The Warrior You podcast delves deep into the topics of leadership, resilience, and human optimization. Our mission statement is simple. You're the mission. A massive shout out to our main sponsor, gym equipment specialist, Aussie Strength a proud Australian veteran-owned business who have kitted out home garage gyms and huge fitness centres all over Australia and globally. This week, Bram talks to Patricia Swavuta, social psychologist and founder of Self Hackathon. Patricia defines herself as a mind hacker rather than a psychologist and completed her PhD in the topic of shame. She's an expert when it comes to rewiring the human brain, that being our ability to control connect with, and change our thoughts. During this episode, we discuss identity and the impact our habits play on how we see ourselves and, in return, how others perceive us. We unlock our inner code and learn how to hack our thoughts by understanding and shifting our attention. And finally, Patricia gives us her top tips on how we can control our very own nervous system. So sit back and enjoy episode one of season two of the Warrior You podcast. Patricia Swavuta. Yeah, there you go. PhD. Doctor. Doctor Swavuta. <laughs> social psychologist. Social psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. A behavioral scientist. And the founder and Self owner Hacken. of Self Hackathon. Yeah. Okay. Caveat. You are a personal friend of mine. Yeah. Which is amazing in itself. I'm... Honoured, honestly, mm. to have you. So thank you. Pat- thank please. you for having me. Patty. Patricia. 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 Today's not about pronunciations of words. Uh, Why not? <laughs> even if I can't get your name right ever after all this time. Um, so today we're going to talk about, I've got a whiteboard in front of us, and we're going to talk about, my God, specialises in complexity and non-linearity, non-linearity of human nature. Basically, rewiring the human species. Mm. We're going to talk about that sort of stuff. Yes? Yes. All right. So tell me a little bit about yourself first, Patty, so the audience has a frame of reference for where we're going to go from here. Mm, Sure. I was born in Poland, therefore my accent. Most of my research has been around the dark side of the human nature. So I researched Mm. genocide, um, specializing in moral emotions, so shame, guilt, humiliation, the big piece of work in Israel around humiliation and Mm. what it does to the human psyche. Mm. Um, Did some research on torture, terrorism, and um, last big piece of research was around Occupy Wall Street. I was really looking at greed. Oh, wow. Emotion. So when you you look at all the dark emotions, um, I actually think they rule the human nature. Right. So we used to have ongoing conversation with the positive psychologists who used to, 
put emphasis on the positive, we would say, don't forget about the negative because that's really what's under the skin, mm. which we can see right now as it's, you know, as the world is yeah. on fire. And so that those negative attributes of human nature, um, is that created through nature or nurture or are people born I mean people aren't born bad I don't or think is it's there? bad that to start with I don't think it's bad and you mm. know you've been enough in conflict zones to know mm. that somewhere mm. in the gray space mm. and then we say it's good or bad mm. um, what well, so you can be I would say bad. it's a spectrum of human experience right spectrum of human nature and it's just the other side of the spectrum of human nature now I also believe you know I, I I like the messiness of the human nature because I think our nature, there's depth to it and there's width to it. Mm. And we don't really spend time anymore, or few of us, being busy with everyday life. Mm. We just explore the okay spectrum or good enough spectrum of human nature. Mm. And then some of us go into the venture into this awe and wonder. Mm. Um, but you can't really go there unless you, you know, the brain works in contrast. You need to see a contrast. So what is awe and wonder compared to what? And so we have, you know, the pain the humiliation, the horrors of the human nature. And um, it's just, um, I find it fascinating. And I think actually, when you think about inchworm, when the, how the inchworm moves, it moves front first, but then you need to pull the back mm. in. That's mm. how it moves. Mm. Um, so really tapping into the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, right. Yeah. Tell me more about the inchworm. How does that analogy, how does that analogy work with, looking at humans yeah so is it you can look at love and happiness and all that sort of garbage up front <laughs> but then but then behind that behind the scenes or under the at the bottom of the iceberg so to speak you've got all this other stuff that's going on that then has that then pushes it forward well it keeps us trapped in mm. a way you know somebody once told me in new york they say you're only as fast because i used to go a million miles per hour Mm. I, you know, I moved into New York extremely hungry, very poor. Mm. Um, and I had to make my way in the most aggressive, mm. the most masculine city in the world, most mm. likely. And I did, you know, and I not only survived, but thrive. Mm. There's a price to pay for it. Yeah. Every, something has to go. Mm. So I was going million miles per hour. And somebody said, you know, you're only as fast as your slowest piece, mm. Mm. as mm. the slowest part. And I was like, oh, shit, what is the slowest part? And that was just some stuff that I, you know, left behind mm. parts of me that was still holding me hostage. Yeah. Um, so I would say it is really moving that slowest part, which very often is young, mm. hurt, um, huh. abandoned, feels unlovable. Mm. We put it into the closet and somebody shamed us around it or mm. we shamed ourselves. And or that's culture in the back said, of the mind. That's right. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, in parts theory in psychology, that part will be arguing. Yeah. And that part won't let you move. So people say the lack of behavior change very often happens because two parts are fighting. There's this one part, let's say. And when you hear people actually talk about what holds them back, they say, well, there's this one part that wants this, and then there's the other part that just wants to eat the cookies, right? And the mm. other part just wants to run marathons. And they don't, they don't agree. Mm. Um, can you have those two to have a conversation in a way? Conflict. Yeah. Yeah. What was your thesis on, your PhD thesis? Uh, shame. Shame mm, and how collective shame. So I was looking at post um, post genocidal places, so places where genocide happened or some kind of mass violence, and looking how 
emotions get embedded in um, the collective psyche. Because you can start thinking about nations as people in a way, and they all have their moods, and they all have their emotions and their memories. And then good politicians know what memories to create so that the society is motivated to move forward, whereas some, you know, societies just look backwards. Or, or in fact, as the United States, we see in many other places, are being held back Mm. by past that was never addressed. Oh, it was right. covered over, but it, you know it, the ghosts of the past are yeah. the skeletons in the closet are coming out right now. So being held hostage over um, slavery from generations That's ago, slavery, um, the treatment of Native Americans, mm. um, how the land was taken, mm. all that stuff is is coming back right now. Yeah, wow. Um, so you put me onto a book uh, by James Cleary, Atomic Habits, mm. about and. In particular, I wanted to talk to you about um, identity and identifying as something and then that leads to developing more habits to be a better version of whatever that identity right. is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people who are going for special forces selection or something similar like that, if they were to identify as the person on the other side of that selection earlier then they can build those habits to support them getting through what is a pretty arduous activity. Um, what are your thoughts on, on identity and habit forming? Well, I think habits are... Warren Buffett says that there is one law in investing, and Warren Buffett is one of the most successful investors ever in the history mm. uh, of investing and, and wealth management. And he says there's one law that most people that's underappreciated and that's low of compound interest. Mm. And I think habits Mm. are the most underappreciated tiny little tools, atomic tools, atomic parts of human identity that we underappreciate. But they they do give a compound interest. And, you know, it's interesting because I I remember my dad growing up in Poland, he would wake up like yourself at 5 a.m. He would do, I think, 300 um, push-ups. And and he now he doesn't. And I, you know, I was I went on a road trip with him, and I said, "You've grown old, but not physically. You've grown old mentally." And he says, "Yeah, because one by one, you kind of let go of those little things that mm. technically doesn't make any difference, but they actually do." Those, yeah. even if he wasn't doing three hundred push-ups today, right. if he did those three, but he's not, you know what I mean? And it kind he's like day by day, those things kind of yeah. slide away. Yeah. Oh, just as you can yeah. add them up, they can yeah. also slide away. Because it's like, well, big deal. I, I just don't do it today. But no. then you didn't do it today. You won't do it tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, what I've noticed is, um, so I'm 46. I'm 47 this year. And people say to me, oh, you're getting old. And they and so they, they, they are applying an identity to me. Um, and I still do everything I was doing in my 20s. And I... And I I look around at people who are my age who stop doing those things and they grow old because they identify as being old. But I don't see being old as an identity so much. I see it as, you know, it's just a part of evolution, but I don't allow that to continue to form my identity of who I believe myself to be. And so the other thing, the other part to that is I hear people who leave the army, they call themselves veterans, right? And they identify as veterans. And the connotation of a veteran is someone who's finished. 
And I identify as ex-special forces. It's a lot more powerful. I'm ex-special forces. I don't identify as being a fucking veteran. Yeah. I don't. Because as soon as someone says veteran to me, you're either broken, washed up, mentally disturbed, sitting around on your balcony with your gun dog looking out over your farm. Like, that's not me. I'm an ex-special forces major. Like, that is my identity. And it's a lot more powerful position to be in. And I think people need to, to reframe the way they see themselves if they want to change. And so my habits are ex-special forces major habits. Yep. They're not ex-veteran Correct. habits. Um, you know, as we say in psychology, words create worlds. Mm. And the brain processes things. The brain organizes things based on the language we give it. Um, and so out of, let's say, the research shows that out of the amount of information that hits you at any moment, including now when we're talking, only 3% is consciously processed. And it's processed because I have some kind of mental frame, in which case it says we're having an interview, you're asking questions, I'm answering, right? But I could be doing a million other things. And my attention is the most scarce resource I have, and I give it to you right now, and you give it to me. Um, wow. But what shapes it is the language, right? The language tells you pay attention to this. And so, absolutely, um, I think, you know, I, I am such a mixed bag because my background is psychology, but I also work in technology. I, I'm pretty strong in stat- statistics. And people always say, what do you do? And I could never really explain it to them. So I came up with a new term. I said, I'm a mind hacker. Mm. And not only it's exciting, it gets people because otherwise, if I said I'm a psychologist, they will put me into a box, right? Yeah. Oh, it's this lady who sits and just doodles her fingers and analyzes analyzing you. things. Mm. Well, I'm not that. Am I a statistician? Well, I know stats, but I'm not that either. I'm mm. this and this and because this. Because that would so make you a nerd. That would make me a nerd. And right. then if I said I'm in a startup world, where kind of am, you know, that means like that would make you groovy. Yeah, that's exactly right. So to be a mind hacker makes you a sort of a collaborative effort of all of those skills and it's a new term so you get to actually I get to define shape it. or define, define yeah it. define better word versus define the identity being put into a box yeah I love it yeah mm, mm. Um, so I think what you're doing is you literally mm. defining changing the frame of reference yeah. and you know um, I hate it I hate the term veteran I absolutely loathe it and people have asked me why, why don't you have veteran owned business on your well because I'm because I don't identify as that. It's the best of me is yet to come. I love it. Mind hack. You've done some TED Talks. So what was your favorite? What was the, the favorite TED Talk you've ever given? I know you've had some standing ovations, but what was your greatest TED Talk? It wasn't actually a TED Talk. Um, it was a, a talk I gave at Facebook. Mm. And I was wondering what is there that I can contribute to people who are extremely smart and... Who work at Facebook. Who work at Facebook. Yeah. And... Um, and a lot of my friends from academia ended up working in those companies because we, we are at the intersection. We call it psych tech. We are at the intersection of um, m- machine intelligence, algorithms, which pretty much define our lives, and in human psychology. In, in other words, we, I can design a product that will make you addicted, and many of my friends have mm. and have the ability. Uh, you know, apps are not designed by engineers. The engineers code it, but it's the, the designed by psychologists. And so... Um, I went into Facebook, and I think they really wanted to hear about um, some of it was the, the talk, algorithms, whatever it was, but ended up talking about that human nature, there is math to it, and then there is magic. And the math is the algorithms that run our life. And they're, they're quite, you can, uh, you can predict them. They're predictable. 
right? So if I say A, you say B, and I know how the best prediction of future behavior is past behavior for most people. I mean, the overlap rate is what, like 90% or so. But then there is a part of the of the human nature that I call the magic, and it's this, the, the, the quality of the human spirit. Those are the people who raise from the ashes, who redo themselves, who have the capacity to go against, you know, all the odds and do things that are, seem impossible or, or even, you know, small miracles. And, and, and that was the one I was talking yeah. about, was the quality of the human spirit. And, um, and I really like that part because that's, yeah. that's the one algorithms cannot predict and I don't think they will yeah. ever. It's interesting you say that because I, I was following David Goggins on Instagram for a while before he was really big. And, um, you know, he was this big, fat guy when he was in the in the uh, navy and he and he well before that and he went into um the navy seals and failed the first failed i think he failed it three times seal selection and then passed on the fourth time and they and they couldn't break him on the fourth time and then i think he's done ranger and special forces selections but i think he's the only guy who's done all of those things and he's one of those outliers who no one would think you know that's the magic you know no one would think that guy would be successful at anything you know really but and you look at him now, he's just a beast, you know, and he identifies as that. That's a self-perpetuating identification. What is he in the identifying as? As someone who's an elite athlete, mm. you know, and because of that, he does what elite athletes, right. athletes do because he, as, as you know, James Clear would, Cleary would say in Atomic Habits, you know, he would look at something and go, well, what would an elite athlete do? Right. Oh, they do this. Okay, well, I'll do that. And, and it becomes, it becomes um, an infinite circle of habits. So yeah. it's a it's a it's a crossing where persistence meets passion and, and patience. Right. Say that again. Persistence. Yep. Passion. Mm. And patience. Persistence, passion, patience. Yeah. So trusting that process. Yeah. Mm, I like it. Yeah. Very cool. How complex are we as humans? Very complex. I knew I was going to ask. Very this. complex. Are um, we? I'm not very. I don't think I'm very complex. I think I'm pretty, pretty simple actually. A few needs. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Well, you most well, it really because you asked me a question: is a nature is a nurture? It's both. Mm. It's an interaction. So mm. if you put yourself in the same environment, you mm. you know the nature will interact with nurture. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the situations that are a little bit more extreme, which I think are really interesting, mm. where you increase the complexity and then see what happens, because yeah. uh, that's really the innovation space is where the past does not hold you hostage, the road is undefined. There's no identity there because new identity is just being made and suddenly people come up with things that are amazing. Yeah. They amaze themselves and they amaze others. Yeah. Give me some examples of that. What does that look like? So I think there's really interesting research on uncertainty, which is brain's biggest fear, not knowing. Yeah. But somebody told me that nothing exciting and nothing great ever came from a space of knowing. Most of the great things mm. in the History of humanity comes from the space of not knowing and yeah. you going into that not knowing That's interesting. and creating. And I think that is such a beautiful and courageous process because you walk in with that fear, mm. not in a stupid way, but in a, in a way, you know, we were talking a little bit about dominance and surrender. That is ultimately to surrender to the some, that something greater will come out of it. And yeah. I think it's, I bow down to people who are willing to be in the arena and step into the arena despite the fear into the unknown, which which we know from research, from all the research, is that that's what the brain hates, not knowing. So combat is a little bit like that because you you think you know 
well, you know all the capabilities of you and your team. You think you understand the enemy and their capabilities. The environment has an impact to play. And then, and then the mission gets underway. But you're never really sure if you're going to be 100% successful, even though you've mitigated most of the things that can go wrong. Um, actually, a better analogy, I think, is poker. Mm. Um, and, and the reason is because I think more people identify with it. So I've got two cards and you've got two cards and I know what those two cards are and you know what your two cards are. We're playing Texas Hold'em. So, so, so for me, there's a known known, my two cards, mm. and there's a known unknown, which is your two cards. And then there's the deck of cards and then for both of us, that's an unknown. And then the flop happens, three cards get put down and that, can, that could change the game dramatically depending on the two cards that either of us have. Then the next card and the next card. But the other thing that's interesting is the stimulus interaction between the two people so I bet chips, you bet chips, I raise, I may bluff, put all my chips in and now you're looking at me, looking at your cards. You know what you know. You know what's out on the table but you don't know what I know. Am I bluffing, am I not? The unknown. I think that game theory, and I know, I know some psychologists have studied poker as a game theory um, tool to explain crisis and crisis management and chaos. Do you think poker can help a leader go and play poker and you get better at making decisions under pressure without all the information? I think so. Yeah. First of all, we have ability to hack ourselves if we don't take advantage, aka understand our code that runs us. Mm. Human beings are the effect of 200,000 years of evolution. We have evolved with a code that is pretty, pretty robust. Right. And that code says... Survive. Do not die. Live. Live. Yeah. Easy. Um, Easy. And doesn't necessarily Breathe. it doesn't necessarily mean thrive or live. Mm. So it, it's, oh, it's, right. it's it's biased towards not dying. <laughs> oh, I see. Right. Mm. Um, so just getting up in the morning, eating, drinking, maintaining functions is living. No, no, that's surviving. That's not living. Yeah. yeah so right. I think most people survive. Very few people are really alive. Mm. Um, talking about high performance or even optimization, I feel like it moves towards the living part, mm. um, but not so, so. A lot of people associate with the with the positive kind of flow state, which I think it's fantastic. Mm. That living also means going into the darker spaces. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? Like you, sometimes we feel life walking into the fear, mm. not necessarily walking into the thrill. Mm. Um, so. Those two spe- ends of the spectrum. Mm. Um, Do you have to experience that fear and that thrill just, to be truly alive? Um, no, you don't. You mm. don't. And that's just, you know, and th- that's perfectly fine. Um, and a mo- l- lot of people will be willing to stay in that space. And that is fine. A lot of societies are actually designed for that, right? Be content. Mm. Um, watch TV, consume. And survive. And work and survive. And yeah. that is fine. And pay your taxes on time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have an emotional depth that that you will self-actualize. I think if you want to do really cool things, you have to step into the unknown. You have to step out of that boundary of what you just said, where that society says, you're a vet. (laughs) Self-definite, I'm a dad. I see how many, how often, because it it can be amazing identity to have. And I see that a lot in Australia, actually. You don't see that in the US and you don't see it in Europe. 
pretty much all of the headlines say, oh, a 43-year-old dad or 50-year-old mom. And I'm like, is that really the prom- the most prominent identity somebody can have, that their dad or yeah. a man? I, I mean, it's wonderful, mm. and that's great. Uh, and moms and dads have done amazing things. But do you is that really the prominent identity that you want to be looked through? That's where onto? that's what you take to the end. Yeah. You're a dad. Yeah. I suppose it's pretty cool for some. It's cool yeah. for my kids to have a dad. Yeah. Finite, infinite game theory. Well, I want to go back to mm. your question about whether leadership can be taught through poker. Yeah. Or any type of game or, like that. Or making decisions as a leader. That's exactly right. Without all the information, which I think is a really important skill for a leader. Absolutely. So, mm. so in those situations, I think what happens is you get to inspect your own code and you get to see there is enough self-awareness. As I said, awareness, our attention is the most scarce resource. We usually give it away to others and it gets, we give it to Facebook, we give it to whatever it is, including this, this podcast, right? You're trying to get somebody's attention. You give them amazing thing, mm. um, but you're trying to get somebody's attention. I want and their attention. all yeah. day long, somebody's trying to get your attention. It's your most scarce, your most precious resource you have. Mm. But you can turn that attention on yourself. Mm. Very few people do. Because, A, you know, there's all this distraction out there. But if you actually do, you get to inspect your own code. And you look beyond the, the flat screen of who you are or who you think you are, the, the labels that people define, and you get to look into your back-end code. Now, most people don't really understand the back-end code. They don't really know what drives them. Mm. Um, they don't know how they function. And I think unless you know how you function as a leader, unless you understand your own psychology, you can't really... Understand the psychology of others. So if you're emotion, the definition of emotional intelligence is ability to manage your own emotions, understand your own emotions, manage your own emotions, man- and from that place understand emotions of the other. And then ultimately, which really is leadership, is manage the emotions between you and manage their emotions. I've been doing it all wrong. Yeah, I get it. No, I do. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um. So, so managing poker and many other games, including COVID now, everything yeah. that's happening, you get to inspect your own code and you get yeah. to expect because it's happening to everybody at the and same so, time. Sorry, by inspecting your own code, you mean where you're putting your attention gives you a really good indication of what it is that motivates or drives you. Not only that, you get to rewire your brain. Right. The brain is wired to rewire. It's, yeah, it is, a, yeah. it's a plastic organ that... Um, you know, you said some people say you're getting old. Well, maybe your muscles, you're getting old. Or maybe your, you know, the skin on your face is mm. getting old mm. because clearly you know, there's a limited time that they maintain whatever they're supposed to. Mm. But the brain doesn't really, I mean, yes, the brain ages, but there are parts of the brain that continuously grow new neural pathways. Mm. And the brain is extremely plastic. It, um, it's wired to rewire. In other words, but what's really interesting, the brain takes the form of what the mind rests on and the mind rests on what, that, on what the attention rests on. In other words, your attention affects your mind, which is this emergent, that affects your brain. So, the more so you, you have consume, the capacity to wire your brain, you're, you yourself. Yeah, so you continue to consume things that will help your or will hinder your brain's growth. That's exactly right. And we say in, you're in feeding neuroscience... It. You're feeding it information and you're either creating new... Positive neuropathways, or you just further poisoning. It's it's not it's. I wouldn't even put um, labels whether they're they're just neuropathways. We say neurons that fire together, wired together, right? Mm. So wherever your attention goes, they say energy flows. 
if you wish, that means there are new neural pathways developed there and that will become your habit. Yeah. And your habit become your identity. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. So you can work it you can work it from identity level backwards or you can work it from um habit back to identity. Yeah. Or you can work on both ends at the same time and just cut the not to cut the corner, but make it faster and more powerful. So you work on the identity level and on the habit level at the same so time. So the, the takeaway from all of this really is that um, identity and habit uh, are the two things that support better behaviours. Your habits um, will help you form your identity mm-hmm. and the identity that you see yourself have as will help to get those habits reinforced over time. That's exactly right. And mm. I think the stories you tell yourself in your mind mm. are the most powerful stories. Mm. Um, yeah. Because and so what are the stories of the future you're telling yourself? Like, yeah. is that future identity really exciting? Yeah. If, if, you, if you're able to paint a future of reality that's as real, you know, in 10 years or whatever, whatever you want to get to as yeah. it is now, the entire system will work towards it. But, um, Patrizia, yeah. your... your um, asserting that there is a degree of free will in this and that a person actually has control over their destiny. Mm. Surely as a psychologist, yeah, there's a certain degree of um, understanding that perhaps free will, I don't know, maybe it's all predetermined. and Or as a psychologist, do you completely think that's rubbish, that there is... There is free will, and that you can be whatever you want to be if you if you train yourself to be that person or identify as that mm. person. Sure, as I said, I think or is that too spiritual? The whole there is no free will. I think the truth is somewhere in between. Mm. Um, do we design this? Have we designed this entire experiment, which some people say we did, and we live in a gigantic simulation? Mm. Yeah, um, that's so crazy. In which I get to just you know change some pixels in my head. And everything else changes around me. And there, there are people who actually believe that, and some very, very serious people in Silicon Valley would believe that that this is one big simulation. Okay, but the, um, this is the problem I have with that theory. Yeah, um, you can only you can only believe that theory now because we have computers and because we understand that a simulation is a computer um, language. If you were back in the period of Genghis Khan, mm-hmm. that person's not going to be thinking about the fact that the world is a simulation because that doesn't exist. That language doesn't exist. Well, you're talking about Genghis Khan. He was the biggest emperor. He created the biggest empire in the history of the world, right? right. I mean, they were just... I have Mongolian in me precisely because I'm some great, 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 great granddaughter of Genghis Khan or one of his you mm. know, mm. troops mm. simply because they just got on their horses and just conquered Europe pretty yeah. much. I mean... But my, my argument is that they, because they didn't understand what a computer simulation is. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Then they can't posit that we're all inside a simulation. But because people in Silicon Valley can create that, they then say, oh, what we can create, we're actually in. Well, no, we're not. Right. Yeah. They had other gods, though. I've stumped a psychologist. Yeah. They did, you know, they did have other gods and they believed everything is being governed by gods, whereas you look at the Greeks Mm. and then they would say, this is all fake anyway. Right? It's actually not that dissimilar when you look at Marcus Aurelius and some of the Stoics. They're saying... All this is a mirage anyway. The, the pleasure, pain, this is all fake stuff. Right. Which, compu- which computer simulation theory is would the say not, not that dissimilar. Yeah. Wow. We just have different ability to talk about it right now. But At a different level. Yeah. Mm. Well, what do you think about, um, who was that? Yuval Harari actually has interesting case in which he says, um, he talks about, just gamification of everything, you know. And I and I used to say that software is eating up the world. I actually think gaming in general is eating up software because everything is becoming game now, right? But when you think about religions, there are gigantic games too, right? Yeah. You will get your brownie points. You would, after your death, you would either go up, level up to heaven or you would go level down to hell. Yeah, there'd be a big, like, clanging noise, be level up. Yeah. That's exactly, and there are (laughs) rules of the game, and you play by the rules of the game, and you get the little tokens. Yeah, Yeah. so you know, same games, same principles, just different mindsets and different tools, Mm. but the principles are very, very similar. The human psychology have not changed (laughs) much. No, so I would have what what people would assume to be um, or could label as a positive bias towards most things. and then some people who, who I've met, and I talked to Dr. Lee's Notbart last season, it was episode 15, uh, around negative bias. Mm. Um, do you want to elaborate on what, on what biases are? Um, what types are they and what do they mean? Yeah, sure. So we have about 110 biases. Um, and we all have them. Um, the initial research was created by Kahneman and Tversky, and they actually did get Nobel Prize for it. It was the very first Nobel Prize in 2002 in economics given to psychologists, as they showed that human beings are not rational beings, right? We don't really, we might have the spreadsheets, but we don't invest based on our spreadsheets. We don't make decisions in a rational, kind of calculated way. And one of the big, there are many, many biases, but the big one that a lot of that we see the most prominent in the human nature. They're just mental shortcuts. So the brain is very lazy. Mm. As I said, the the attention is so precious that the brain tries to conserve it and says, ma, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. When once I call it a duck, then anything that quacks will be a duck. And I don't have to inspect it. I don't have to, you know, look at the different colors. And I know that different colors, it's still a duck. Saves time, speeds up response. Exactly right. So you can get busy doing other Use things. Use energy on other things. That's exactly right. Calories. That, that uh, It's like brain calories. Think so about so it that way. Yeah. Um, survival, not yeah. living. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly right. right. Survival. And so the, one of the biggest biases that has to do with survival yeah. is negativity bias. Sorry, hang on one sec. So just to 
just so the listeners can can draw that mental um, link together that we just made. So we were talking before about how people survive; they don't necessarily live. And talking about that, um, how the way biases are formed. If you if it quacks like a duck and it waddles like a duck, and you think it's a duck, then you see a duck, and then you continue on because you're saving calories, you're saving thought process. But um, if you stop and then you look at that particular duck and go, my God duck has the most beautiful teal feathers and I've never noticed before that its webbed feet are so large and that it's doing the following things, then that now is probably more associated with living because you're actually using brain power and those same calories to have a deeper moment, a deeper... uh, You're in the moment with the duck, so to speak, as opposed to just responding to stimulus response. Mm -hmm. Mm. Or... Or even saying, I've seen it. We see that a lot in couples therapy or in any relationship mm. when relationships start going rocky. Mm. Um, people say, well, I, I know what she's going to say anyway. Mm. Mm. Why even bother? Like, mm. It's always been like that, right? Mm. So we make, we make assumptions. So the duck example is, you know, we just made it as silly as we could. Mm. But we do that. And they're humans, delicious, and right? And so most importantly, we do it to ourselves. Yeah. Oh, I won't even try because I know I just, it just makes no sense. Well, I'm old already. How many people say... I'm too old for it. Yep. Um, mm. You know, there's this research on um, what regrets that people have on their deathbed. Mm. And uh, number one regret, I wish I lived life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Mm. And so um, it has to do something with like how we also bias against ourselves, which is really interesting. So the negativity bias, going back to that, is the bias that says we pay attention to, we remember, we ruminate in the evening, we ruminate about things that went wrong, that were negative in a way. And we learn very quickly from the negative, like literally get wires in a milliseconds into the brain and says, got burned, they laughed at us. Now that's what's really interesting. It's called negative bias, but what is negative to me might be very different negative to you, right? There are certain things. I know people who, you know, something happened when they were three years old and they did a speech and, I don't know, somebody rolled their eyes and they will never, ever give a speech ever in their life. Yeah. And they might have the most amazing things to say Mm. and potentially there's the song inside of them or whatever is inside of them that needs to get out, Mm. but it will not because of that negative thing that happened. Yeah. And so it gets locked and say, well, this happened when I was three or wherever, I will never have, or like I'm just... Or I am just a bad public speaker. Mm. I remember, you know. Are they identify as that? Yeah, of course. Again. Yeah. Yep. So this is the negativity bias. It will. It makes us survive. Mm. I'm not sure if it makes us thrive or yeah. be fully alive. Whereas if you if you identify it as a good public speaker, then you'd go, okay, well, a good public speaker would stand in front of a mirror and practice. Okay, I'm going to go and practice, and then a good public speaker would get the rehearsals done, so I'm going to do that. A good public speaker would dress like this, so I'll do that. Now, a good public speaker will get on a stage and talk. That identification, those habits, then create that good public speaker, even from someone who was necessarily not good prior to that and was scared because they'd been told bad things about Mm -hmm. them public speaking. Or I'm learning to be a public speaker too. Mm. Um, A lot of verbs, I think Mm. what's really interesting, it, it... there's a book called Practicing Mind, and I really like the book. I don't remember what it was about, but I really like the ing at the end of the verb mm. um, because it's it's about practicing things. It's mm. becoming, mm. Um, mm. B 
becoming something. Mm. And that's really where that's really that's really becoming. talking about resilience. Like yeah. Resilience is that becoming. You never really reach that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am a good public speaker and it's, and yet, you know, I I'm still learning. Because yeah. every single so I think the trick is we get locked either in that negative, I'm a bad public speaker or I'm a good public speaker. And I remember I had some events where people literally walked out on me and it just destroyed me because I had this image of myself, I'm a good public speaker. Well, why do people even dare to walk out of, you know, even if one person, if I remember how much it used to hurt me. Versus when you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a public speaker, I'm, a, I'm learning how to be better and better. That, um, that gives you just a margin of error and the ability to learn and actually be resilient. The and as Marcus Aurelius says, you right. know, the obstacle in the way becomes the way. What stands yeah. in the way becomes the way. Right. So I learned from that event where people walked out on me, I learned like, well, you don't talk like that to engineers. So you need to know who actually who your audience is because they're very mm. different than entrepreneurs. I had an interesting experience um, getting up and talking to a big crowd the first time. It was a, a couple of thousand people, uh, maybe just under, maybe under a thousand, sorry. That's yeah, a big difference. Um, and I remember thinking before I got, got on there, it's going to really rattle me if people get up and walk out ones and twos or threes or 10. And then I thought the way I would deal with this, if I was on a selection course or if I was in a combat or if I was doing something to do with a high end, um, sporting thing, you know, how would I deal with that? I would have to pre see this before I go out there. I have to deal with it before I get out there. So I said, okay, in my mind. If two or three people get up, then there's an emergency I don't know about that they've messaged each other about and they've got to go out together and solve it. And that's what's happening. Good. Okay, good. So then I got up on the stage and cracked on and someone had to get up to do something and left. But it didn't bother me at all because I already knew that person was leaving for whatever reason they were leaving. I'd already framed that in my mind. Um, hey, let's talk of resilience. So you've you've... Um, got a definition for resilience, which is the ability to deal with the depth and breadth of the human experience. Um, is resilience the same as mental toughness? You knew I was going to ask you this. Mm-hmm. How do you define mental toughness? Um, I'm not sure anymore. I think yeah. I think mental... Then it might be the same, might not. I think mental toughness is something that you have to practice. I think resilience, in my mind... So mental toughness, in my mind, has to do with mine. Resilience, in my mind, has to do with heart, in a way. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Mental toughness is how do you frame things. Mm. Resilience is how stable is your heart. Mm. How quickly can you put your heart... And and I mean heart both Mm. in terms of the metaphorical heart. And emotional. But also, actually, the physical nervous system. Can you stabilize your nervous system? Mm. Right? Um, Can you bring yourself back to a state where the system is responsive and does not go into one of... So what we know from um, talking about complexity of the human nature, and I I borrowed that term from complex dynamics Mm. and complex systems, which is a term used in mathematics. Mm. Um, Complex system is, uh, uh, let's say, corollary is a complex system. Just billions and billions of numbers will make a complex system. A system, if a system is not integrated, it's not um, adaptive, and adaptive to me is resilient, because it cannot kind of process itself and stabilize itself, it will go into one of two states. It will go into chaos or rigidity. Mm. Think about human nature. When shit hits the fan, some people stay adaptive, right? 
kind of soft on the edges. The core is strong, but the soft on the edges. Malleable. Malleable, right? And those are the people we say they're resilient because they come up with ideas. Well, what if we do this? What if we do that? Right. Now, there will be some people that will go into the panic mode, right? They just lose. And break. And break. Mm. Or some people go into rigidity and they're like, I can't believe this is, this is not going according to the plan, mm. right? And they just become like the cement. Um, resilience is the capacity of being in that middle. We call it window of tolerance. How big is your window of tolerance? How oh, much can you tolerate? How much can, well, there you go, because you guys go through that. But it training. changes. Your nervous system. But if it I does, was to put a, But it changes too, depending. If does. I haven't had enough sleep, then my resilience is lower. If so you see it's physically based. If I'm hungry, yeah. if I'm hungry, I will not tolerate idiocy. But if, I'm, if I've eaten... You'd be an idiot around me all, all you want. Or you know you haven't eaten yeah. and you will be – so you, you're using your – you mm. understand your code. You know, mm. okay, if then, because most of the coding language says if then. If then, yeah. So your, your code if says I'm hungry. if I'm hungry, then I am more irritable. Yeah. And you can account for that. Yeah, if then. That's a good name for a book, Which Patty. If then. If it's, then. Well, well, yeah, and then – but you can program yourself because that's the basic coding language. If then, most of the code, the basic code says, if this happens, then do this. Pull the information from that database. Yeah. This is how the brain works as well. It says, if this happens, then do that. So for you, let's say, you know, if I'm, if I, I know that if I'm hungry, I get irritated. Then you say, if I'm hungry and I know I'm hungry, this is what I should do. So mm. you can't, you, you inject a new code into mm. the old code. Now, when you look at how, computers work you never we never erase an, a code the mm. code always exists we just put new code mm. on top of it mm. so just as in evolution like we have the dinosaur blood in us and mm. we have the cyber tiger and we have you know neanderthal and that's fine because neanderthal just wants to like we just kill and bang pretty mm. much mm. but on top of that you can start calling new code and that yeah. is the self i call it the self-directed evolution mm. instead of the evolution moving really really slow we can move it much faster now with all the tools that I'm sure you're giving your listeners as well. It's amazing. Yeah, but is that not social engineering gone crazy as well? Like we're, we're trying to add, we're trying to socially engineer a planet to be, to be all woke and... Yeah. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't think you're trying to change anybody except for yourself. I think that the most important work we can do is really on ourselves because it's all yeah. fractal. Yeah. So, um, you know, your my liberation is linked to your liberation in a way, but oh. I need to liberate myself first. Oh, um, I love it. So that that means, and I, I mean, I, I've been a firm believer. I can't talk to you about freedom unless I'm a free person. Yeah. And I can only free myself. Right. Yeah. Or I can't talk to you about truth and honesty unless I am that. Yeah. Do you think, so do you think self, I, I Self-manipulation is what I want to talk talk about. I've reframed that in recent years thanks to um, some work I've done with BHP on – we've called it benevolent manipulation. Mm-hmm. So where you – so for instance, say, Paddy, you like golf and you're one of my subordinates and I come to work and I'm like, hey, Paddy, how was golf on the weekend? And I can't stand golf, but I'm just manipulating myself to look like I'm interested in you and golf to get the best out of you for the day. Is that lying or is that is that human nature? Is it a type of uh, am I self-manipulating? Am I benevolently manipulating both you and me? What what do you think that is? So what we know, and I'll, I'll give a somehow 
weird answer to that, but I'll link it back to what you just asked me. When we look at different types of therapies, right? You have all kinds of therapies. When people go to a therapist or coach or whatever, you know, different people use different tools and tricks or whatever it is. But what we see from the research is not the type of therapy that people engage with. It is the connection between the therapist and the patient or the client. That's what heals. Human attention heals. I always say your presence is the present you give to another human being. It's the most... It's the purest and rarest form of generosity is human attention. So even if I don't give a jack shit about your golf, I am giving you my attention. Mm. Which is the rarest commodity, as you said. And Mm. you choose, that is your choice where you put it, and you choose to put it on that human being. Which, let me tell you, it feels amazing. Because most of us, at some point, you want to feel, well, at any point, want to feel felt, seen, and heard. And most of us don't. So as a leader benevolently manipulating it's not is it it's not manipulation at all it's giving your your limited resource of attention to someone the most generous gift you could and it's not a physical gift it is i might have been going down the wrong path with this benevolent manipulation perhaps it's a bias i think that that language might be I would tweak the language. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah, and, and I said it during and I'm hope she's listening. Um Jen from BHP. I said it to a very in a group of people, a very smart person said to me, I don't like that. I don't like the words in mm-hmm. it. Manipulation. And I was like, Yeah, but it's good manipulation. You're manipulating yourself. You're trying to get the best out of yourself for the other person. And she wasn't having it. And that worried me because I think she's quite bright, brighter than me. And I'm like, if that person doesn't, yep. if that person isn't, and a lot of other people are just going along with like a, with like sheep do, that worries me too because I don't want you just to go along with something with me just because I've said it and it sounds good. I want you to go along with it because it means something and it connects. And it didn't connect with this person who I said again, you know, I found who I think is very intelligent. And so I went away going, look, if that if that person doesn't relate to that, then something's wrong here. Um. And I think what you're saying now about actually you're, you're not manipulating, you're choosing, you're choosing to, you're choosing to interact with that person and give them your attention. And you might you not be choose. interested in their golf, but you're, but you are interested in choosing to give them your time. Well, you choose to see them, yeah. hear them, and you choose to. In, I I use the term interbe. Yeah. You actually for that moment, yeah. you choose to interview with them, right. and it is. People die for this. Yeah. I mean, we we did uh, do research on radical religious radicalization. Holy or radicalization shit, this is incredible! In yeah, general, go. yeah. People die for this. People blow themselves up for that. Is that feeling? You know, I belong somewhere, and somebody sees me. And very often, when you see who is being targeted by radical organizations, those are the people who never felt that Loved. they they belong. Yeah. That somebody gave them attention when yeah. you look at it. Yeah. So, what do you need? to radicalize someone to want to kill themselves for a cause what's the what's the infrastructure or the framework mm, so um Ari Kruglinski and a couple other people did this research on that and they call it the three ends right. um narrative mm. well first of all need need you, we run on needs that's why i said inspect your code because underneath that code when you go to the source code there's basic human needs um need to belong um, need to 
And I think that's something that's coming out right now. And I had conversation with a couple of neuroscientists about the riots happening, um, you know, at least in the United States. There is a need to feel like your life has a meaning. And so those rallies form part of that need for people. Well... It meets their identity. Some kind of action that mm. pay attention to Bigger me. Than I am here too yeah. as well. Oh. Um, so they're seen, being seen. Yeah. 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 So, so the three needs, the, the, the need, yeah. pr- the f- which is an individual need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so very often it's a need to belong. A lot of people say it's the absolutely basic human need. Yeah. Research is showing us that, you know, the emotional pain of being rejected is the same pain as um, physical pain. I don't know if you ever had a broken heart. Oh, yeah. How does it feel? Broken. Broken, right? <sighs> yeah. There's a, the, what, this is why we use this language, broken. Yeah. Right, because it actually hurts, and your yeah. brain perceives it as physical pain. That's why in, and I'm sure this is being used in the army as well. But back in the day, when you get people would literally die when they got kicked out of the tribe, right? Because not only physically you would die, like you would die out of sorrow. You know huh. that the stories of people dying out yeah. of loneliness, it, yeah. it's not that your body reacts as oh, if yeah. you're an absolute no, no, mortal no, no. threat. I had when I left the army yeah. after 20 years. I had a separation disorder for sure that I had to deal with. I was separated from a uniform, separated from a culture. That's exactly right. Separated from all, and and by culture I mean the rich fabric of known things. You know, things that I would know that other people would know. They were shared normatives in my life. They suddenly disappeared. Like six o'clock PT, seven seven o'clock shower, eight o'clock mess hall. Like that didn't exist anymore. And for 20 years it did. Um, so, yeah, I completely get that. And so th- my needs were met by the army and then by special forces by being part of that um, elite. Network. So the second N is network. Okay. And the third N is narrative. So right? need, network, and narrative. I mean, so special forces and suicide bombers are coming from the same place. Wow. It's human nature. That That's what I say. You get to... Design your evolution. Yeah. Um, so need, need, network, narrative. Mm-hmm. What okay. narrative are you putting on top of everything? Yeah. The brain is a meaning-making machine. Yeah. So for me, what is, what is the story you nation, to, nationalism, yeah. global war on terror? We're the good guys, and for the for the opposing force, for the Taliban, it's an opposing. It, they're it's they're evil. Yeah. They're they're well no. So for them, looking looking at it from their perspective, for instance. Their narrative on top of all of this is there's an occupying force. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in our land where they probably don't even see themselves as an insurgency. They see themselves as right. Of course they do. Yeah. They see themselves as the good guys in a in a way I can't relate to, but I do know they must think that. They must. There's good and bad in the world, right? There's good and evil. But I'm sure the Germans, for the most part, during World War II, didn't see themselves as the bad guys. Of course not. So there's other a than, famous other speech. than some of them, mm, there's who a famous knew what they were doing. That, um, Hitler gave, and he said before even war happened, he said Jews are the biggest threat to global peace. Now imagine how how you shape la- shape language and how you shape the. That's why I said my research was on collective emotions. Yeah. How do you shape the collective consciousness and the collective narrative in which people actually start believing that one particular group is a threat to peace? Yeah. Therefore. They need to be annihilated. Wow. And, and that is the narrative that. of every single 
before pretty much every single genocide happened. And he said that openly, and I recall that speech, um, seeing, seeing, reading, sorry, that speech. So he said that openly, and yet there's things happening now around the world by leaders who don't openly say those things, but they're, they've got all the actions that show it. And I'm obviously talking about one person in particular. I'll probably lose a few listeners over this. But um, it, there seems to be a psychology, an underpinning psychological approach to what's happening in the United States, the way that the, the, way the politics is playing out. Oh, it's a it's a can of worms that you just open. Right. Um, there is, and um, a lot of us are very worried. People who have studied genocide, people who do understand mass movements and uh, mass movement of of of, of humans. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, emotions, hatred, anger, fear. Those are emotions that are contagious. Just, mm. and I think what's really interesting is looking at COVID. People are like, oh, exponential growth. You see how Nothing. quickly COVID moves from yeah. person to airborne. Do you not think anger and fear are airborne in a similar way? Yeah. Right? All it takes is a couple super yeah. spreaders, yeah. if you wish, that have enough of network support. Um, they saw that in Rwanda mm-hmm. with the, the genocide in Rwanda. Right. Two or three people and then hundreds and then thousands of people. Right, and then you had public media. Well, in this case in Rwanda, it was radio. Right. And uh, yeah. it was also being um, facilitated. So now we have internet. Back yeah. then, in 1992, they had radio. Yeah. Um, very similar. So now it spreads even faster. Yeah, yeah, right. So that's why I actually think, going back full circle, your attention is the most scarce resource. Right. Where it goes, you're talking about free will. That is where your free will yeah. kind of kicks in. Because... You can't control the world. You mm. can't control. You can't control what I'm gonna say here, right? No, no. Uh, but you get to choose whether you pay attention. You give it your attention or not. Yeah, and I mean, I look on Twitter, and I go on Twitter for shits and giggles because I like to incite people on it through through positivity. And it just amazes me how many people are negative on Twitter all the time. Like every single thing that's come out of their thumbs has been bloody negativity, mm. and yet I go on there and. Hey, have you thought about how great this is today? And you know, the sun comes up yet another day, and it's going to set tonight, and this too shall end, and things like that. And people just it just doesn't spread. Positivity never seems to spread. It's always a negative that spreads. I think what spreads is there are things that courage spreads in a way. Yeah. Um, curiosity spreads, and hope spreads. Mm. I think hope actually has. Hope and some people, Viktor Frankl actually just, um, oh, yeah. one of his kind of books that was never published was just published and it says Yes to Life, yeah. in which he actually says that hope as opposed to optimism actually requires real work. Yeah. Um, to stay hopeful in face of depression, yeah. um, hopelessness, is it actually requires work. It's a habit too. Yeah. As um, as a psychologist, you, you brought up Viktor Frankl. As a psychologist, um, do you? I mean, some of his, some of the things that he did weren't particularly ethical. Um, some of his studies. Viktor Frankl. Yeah. Are you talking about Zimbardo Viktor? Fr- so Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist. Yep. A Jewish, um, Jewish. There was links. There was links to yeah. him with the um, prior to the Nazi Party in Germany. 
Yeah, it was. I, I was interested to read that. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, but because um, he he said in between stimulus and response is a space, and you are in that yeah. space. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, but you know, then again, that's also Wikipedia. What this leads me to this: What do you believe? Like, just because someone something's on the internet doesn't necessarily. That's mean. exactly right. So <clears throat> I've seen very often studies or headlines that show some kind of research in psychology. Yeah, and then you go in, and I'm like, okay, well. I don't think that's what the results show. So I will go back into the original statistics in the original article yeah. and it would turn out that it's much more complex. Mm. Go back to the sources. Yeah. <coughs> I would say that to anybody. Yeah, um, and see what it really is. There is so much noise out there. So much. Again, everybody's competing for your attention. Yeah. Take ownership of your attention. The brain loves, so one thing that brain hates, hates, hates is uncertainty. One thing that the brain loves is control. Yeah. Sometimes the only thing we can control is A, and we're coming for a circle now, is our own breath. Yeah. Right? So very often the nervous system, before it goes into panic, fight, flight, or freeze, you have the capacity to control your own nervous system. And I would say it's the most, talking about mind hacking, this is the most portable mind hacking tool we have. Mm. And uh, we have it on a daily basis. We don't really use it. As, yeah. You know, some people say, you know, you look for, search for the gold. It was always like one foot be- below you or like digging for the gold. Yeah. We go and we look and, you know, even Hero's Journey, um, the famous Hero's Journey, he goes out and does all those things and slays the dragon and comes back and turns out, you know, was always there, like yeah. in your own backyard. Yeah. I would say, talking about self-directive evolution and our evolution has why we different than why we became the apex predators because of uh, prefrontal cortex. Mm. So our ability to tell stories, imagine stories, wow. and yeah. also our ability to regulate our own breathing. Now that's one. But every one animal can do one, that, surely. What regulate no. their breathing? <laughs> well, you have a dog, right? I have a dog. Okay, so what? Um, what if you told Molly, right? Yeah, what Millie. If, Millie, what if you tell, told Millie to stop breathing? Oh, she just wag a towel. <laughs> right there, you go. Yeah, um, there are very few species mm. um, of animals that can actually control their breath, mm. and um, elephants, dolphins, and us, and and us, and I think potentially whales, uh. um, which all of which are the species that we know have self consciousness. In other words, that means we know have self consciousness. Yeah, yeah. That we know, Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens sapiens means. One that knows that knows. Yeah. You know you know. Is that what it means? <laughs> yeah. Wow. One that knows that knows. Yeah. And we ha- so we have meta capacity. Meta- so Homo sapiens means one that knows that knows. Homo sa- we, we technically the species that we currently yeah. you and I represent is Homo Homo sapiens sapiens. One that knows that knows. Wow, that's so yeah. profound. So we talk about metacognition. Yeah. Which means our ability to know you you have ability to know you suck or you have ability to know. Yeah. You're biased. Yeah. And based on that knowledge that you know that you know, you can start changing, rewiring your brain. That's so cool. Yeah. I could talk to you all day, Patty, but I know that you can't talk to me all day. So um, will you come back on the podcast again and go and talk about things that the listeners want to talk to? Absolutely. All right. Patty, I want to thank you for being on the Warrior You podcast. I'm going to go back and listen to this about 10 times. <laughs> Thanks, thank Brown. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Warrior You podcast. Did you know that our parent company, Hindsight, offers leadership and resilience training as well as workshops? If you would like to know more, please head to www.hindsightleadership.com. 
If you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, there's a donation tab at the bottom of the main podcast page. All contributions are greatly appreciated and help to keep the show on the road. If you're interested in the Warrior U Military Preparation course, you can find all the information through the podcast website page. Just click on the training tab. All this information and more can be found at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. Thank you.